The time to panic is now, not November. The time to agitate is always. This is a major podcast and we call it UNFTR. I'm fucking the Republic is the name that is not safe for work. We hate Reagan, Milton Friedman, Rupert Murdoch, and Matt Gates. Talk socioeconomics, global markets, politics, and race. Max, the host, is basic and admits he likes Miami Vice. 99 produces, also she's a vegan and she's nice. Manny Faces is the genius on the board behind the glass. Together they produce this unbelievable fucking podcast. 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 And, uh, yeah, by the way, my name is Tom McGovern, and just know that I'm a hired gun. So if you're gonna hate somebody, please don't let me be the one. Now you have the details of the show and the entire cast. So listen to this unbelievable fucking podcast. So listen to this unbelievable, this unbelievable, this unbelievable, so listen to this unbelievable fucking podcast. This episode is a recalibration. An interruption of our regularly scheduled program to contextualize the crisis the left faces in the United States. Now, much of this is a direct response to those in the core unfucking audience that have grown increasingly uncomfortable with my anti-Biden rhetoric on the pod. There seems to be a growing sense that I'm willing to burn the barn to get to the nails, that perhaps I'm an accelerationist. I've been reminded of my responsibility as a leftist with an audience, small as it may be not to contribute to any narrative that might support Donald Trump's return to the presidency. I've been skewered by a handful of faithful listeners who claim that I've lost the plot in some attempt to stand on ceremony rather than deal with the existential threat another Trump term poses to the nation and to the world by extension. You know, oftentimes in show notes, my responses are inartful, to say the least. That's why this is primarily a scripted show, mind you. So I feel like I owe it to our community to have it out and clarify a few things about our role as leftists, our aspirations as a nation, and the looming threats on the horizon. Basically, to talk about... If the motto of the show is to meet people where they are, allow me to suggest that we're all actually in the same place. We've already lost. I understand why it's less offensive to some when I criticize past Democratic presidencies. Like, listeners have been pretty much on board when it comes to tearing into Barack Obama and Bill Clinton. But when it comes to the here and now under Biden, things get a little tense. But what good is it to study and learn from history if we don't apply these lessons in the moment? Joe Biden is the president of the United States today, and he wants to keep being president. So let's start at the end and work our way back. It's safe to assume that Trump and Biden will be the major party nominees. Now, if the third party candidates are on the ballot in your state, we're looking at Cornell West, Jill Stein, and Robert Kennedy Jr. And there's a lot of talk lately about RFK switching allegiances yet again and moving over to the libertarian ticket, but that's unsubstantiated at the moment. There's also the possibility that No Labels puts forward a ticket, yet they've only secured ballot access in 13 states thus far. And that's what RFK is running into, by the way. He found out the hard way that gaining ballot access is really difficult and expensive. So he's moved to a strategy of forming new political parties in battleground states to comply with each state's election laws. And West is doing something similar. The two-party duopoly has gone to great lengths to complicate ballot access since Ross Perot upended norms with two independent bids in the 90s. So again, all things being equal, 
Come election day, we've got Biden versus Trump and three outside candidates in West, Stein, and Kennedy. And let me say unequivocally, before we move on, that a Trump presidency would be the most catastrophic of all options because there are no options outside of the duopoly. There is no version of the multiverse where Cornell West is president. So again, Donald Trump is the worst outcome. But the animus toward my criticism of Joe Biden would seem to imply that any such critique is a tacit show of support for Trump. And nothing, I mean nothing, could be further from the truth. Hey, y'all, it's your man Manny Faces. On behalf of our mighty little crew, I want to thank all of you who've jumped on board to support UNFTR. From hundreds of newsletter subscribers since the beginning of the year to new members on the brand new platform, y'all really showing up for us. So thank you. It takes a lot to do what we do, and your support has helped us develop more content in more places. Podcast, YouTube, newsletter, original features on UNFTR.com. We're building something really special here, and it's all thanks to our members. I'll catch you at the end of the show to thank our over-caffeinated sponsors specifically, but for now, let's get back to this cheese bowl. The Compromise of 1850 was intended to stave off the dissolution of the Union, yet it merely deepened the split between free and slaveholding states. A handful of important events over the next decade from the Kansas-Nebraska Act and the caning of Charles Sumner to John Brown's raid at Harper's Ferry and the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860 contributed to the formation of the Confederacy and multiple declarations of secession. You, you know that voice isn't necessary, right? Yeah, okay. Well, there are those who suggest that we're heading toward another civil war in this country. To wit, we have renewed secession threats in Texas, Hollywood's vision in the forthcoming dystopian film Civil War, and Steve Bannon's unrelenting attempts to dismantle federal authority over states, to name a few. Now, the prospect of an armed internal conflict is beyond remote, but the narrative is compelling enough to obscure a more practical, albeit mundane, reality. The steady dissolution of principles among both major parties in this country and the total acquiescence and complete subservience to our corporate masters. Speaking of masters, you're the master of bumper sticker slogans. Really catchy stuff there, Max. Moving on, the decade following the Compromise of 1850 literally broke the country apart. When people talk about the conditions that led to the Civil War, I mean, this is the seminal decade. But an overlooked fact from this era is that it also broke apart the dominant political party in the country. The Whig Party was established for the express purpose of fighting Andrew Jackson's authoritarianism. Now, Jackson, who served as president from 1829 to 37, gave the United States its first real taste of autocracy. The ruthless leader slaughtered native peoples, wielded the veto to govern from the executive branch, argued with and disposed of his vice president, filled cabinet positions with unqualified sycophants, and threatened the use of the military on states that bucked his will. Hence, Trump's decision to hang Jackson's portrait in the Oval Office. The aggrieved professional political class responded with the creation of a new political party to oppose the man many referred to as King Andrew. And while figures such as Daniel Webster and Henry Clay attempted to give shape to the Whig platform, they ran up against the buzzsaw that was slavery. Northern and Southern Whigs split along pro-anti-slavery lines, 
and folded into the Democratic and Republican parties respectively. And we've been living with this duopoly ever since. See, the Whigs learned the hard way that if all you have to unite a party is the opposition, you build on sand. Okay, that's actually a lot more clear and to the point. Well, without much of a platform to stand on, the Democrats are hoping that Trump is enough to unite us all in November. Again. As for the non-MAGA Republicans, they don't have to buy into the cult of personality that is Trump. They just have to look the other way. But dig this. I live in the 3rd Congressional District in New York, the famed George Santos District. And if the mail to my house is a preview of the battle ahead, then there's a twist. The candidates for the special election are conservative Republican Mazzy Pillip and conservative Democrat Tom Swasey, who held the seat before vacating it in the Santos election. Pillip's message is simply that Swasey voted with Biden 100% of the time. Meanwhile, Swasey's attack ads aren't about Trump. They're about abortion. The calculus leading into the election is pretty cynical then, right? The overturning of Roe v. Wade was enough to animate the core base of Democratic voters in the midterm elections. But whether it will be enough to persuade voters to turn out in a special election remains to be seen, so it's fair to view this district as a bellwether of sorts. But the obvious omission of anti-Trump literature tells me that fighting Trump isn't necessarily a strategic lock in a purple district. Anti-Biden sentiment might be more significant than anti-Trump sentiment at this juncture. As for Trump, right now, he's crushing Nikki Haley in the polls leading up to Haley's home state of South Carolina. And if she gets trounced in her own state, Trump will ride that messaging through Super Tuesday and to its inevitable conclusion. Meanwhile, the Democratic Party has to notch some serious victories beyond stimulus bills and government spending from two years ago in what is already a de facto lame duck session. Running on abortion might not be enough considering the Democratic Party doesn't have an answer beyond we have to wait for more Supreme Court justices to die. The midterms might have been punishment for Roe v. Wade, but you can't just run against something that has already happened. If that's the case, you're asking voters to do some serious actuarial math. I mean, Thomas and Alito are the oldest at 75 and 73 respectively, so it's conceivable one of them dies in the next five years. But both? There's a 6-3 conservative majority right now, so at best, we pick up a seat. We already know that Biden won't stack the court, so that means we're banking on taking the presidency and both houses with the supermajority to codify abortion into law? And that brings us back to the DNC calculus. Biden beat him once, so he'll beat him again. Here's the issue. Trump was an incumbent who gave the country extreme anxiety and bungled the response to a global pandemic. Now Biden's the incumbent, and people are still anxious given the inflationary pressures U.S. households have been under. Not many voters are going to blame Trump for that. And Biden has taken the youth and ethnic minority vote for granted whether establishment Democrats want to admit it or not. So let's talk about the votes that Biden is taking for granted right now. Here are a few vital statements of fact according to Pew Research. Number one, in 2020, four of every 10 votes for Biden were Black, Asian, or Hispanic. Number two, voters between 18 and 29 favored Biden by 24 points. Three, nearly half 
of Biden's voters were under the age of 50 compared to 39% for Trump. And four, Trump made gains among millennials and ethnic minorities in 2020 compared to 2016. So the Democratic Party loves to talk about diversity. It likes to think of itself as the youth party as well. Now let's talk about the things that matter to young and ethnic voters. First off, homeownership is a huge issue and the stats aren't great. With home prices stubbornly high, along with interest rates, homeownership rates have fallen since pandemic highs, and they still haven't recovered to anywhere near where they were prior to the Great Recession. Student debt remains at crisis levels, with recent relief efforts going mostly to service workers. But it remains to be seen what the impact will be on black student debt holders who are disproportionately overburdened by this kind of debt. It's all part of the toxic mixture that has led to the highest household debt ratio in U.S. history. These economic pressures show up in the polling data as well. As PBS reports, quote, just 50% of black adults said they approve of Biden in a December poll by the Associated Press NORC Center for Public Affairs. That's compared with 86% in July 2021, with the gap fueling concerns about his re-election prospects, end quote. So the fact that Trump actually made gains among millennials in 2016 and 2020 should also be of paramount concern to the Biden administration, considering that half of the popular vote came from people under the age of 50. These are the pure economic realities that are suppressing Biden's favorability ratings among these key demographics. And then there are the softer issues. And I don't mean soft like soft, I mean like indirect issues that are still really meaningful. And abortion is certainly one of them. But like I said, you can't build a campaign on something that has already happened unless you have a definitive plan to address it moving forward. It hasn't stopped the Biden-Harris campaign from making abortion access a central issue in the re-election campaign. In fact, it was the centerpiece at a recent rally in Virginia, and the campaign is pushing materials criticizing Trump and the Republicans for restricting access in several states. But if you read the materials and the releases, I defy you to find a plan. And the Virginia rally, by the way, was interrupted by protesters calling for a ceasefire in Gaza, which leads to yet another problematic aspect of Biden's re-election bid. Uh, protesters here in D.C. and New York, across the country, uh, they've settled on a nickname for the president. Uh, they've been calling him Genocide Joe. They wrote it on the gates. Um, do you have a response from the White House to that nickname that they've settled okay. on? We're not worried about nicknames and bumper stickers. I mean, uh, it, it's First Amendment free speech. So forget Sleepy Joe. The nickname Genocide Joe is sticking among angry young liberal voters, and it's not going away anytime soon. Bringing about a ceasefire in Gaza and developing a humanitarian plan for displaced Palestinians is officially now Joe Biden's problem. Young liberal voters and black Americans alike are aligned on this issue because the genocide in Gaza is playing out in quarters the administration cannot control. It is being live-streamed on social media, and there's almost nothing that can be done to halt the images escaping Gaza, no matter how hard the mainstream media tries to minimize it. Black voters in America see America arming and aiding what they perceive to be a white nation in the destruction of brown people. The same brown people, by the way, who were very vocal in their defense of the Black Lives Matter movement. Biden is also taking an increasingly hard line on border crossings, signaling that he's willing to shut down the border 
in the dispute between Texas and his administration. And all this will do is make the situation look even more out of control, which plays directly into the hands of Republican strategists who are pouring accelerants on the immigration fire and tying up border funds with foreign aid and other spending measures to hamstring the administration. It's just that he doesn't look like he's in fucking charge right now. So in addition to navigating the war in Gaza, Biden has to develop a plan at the border that doesn't look inhumane all in the matter of a few months. And he's going to need more than that. The administration has to put forward an aggressive economic relief plan for the working class that incorporates down-ballot initiatives to convince Americans that there's more on the planning board than just waiting for funds from omnibus bills two years ago to pay off. Otherwise, Biden's one term may be more aptly compared to Millard Fillmore in the end of the Whig Party than Jimmy Carter's time in office. So where does this leave progressives? And why am I saying the election has already been lost? And how can I say that you should go ahead and vote for Biden? Well, the fear of another Trump term is palpable and growing as Trump continues to clear hurdles toward the GOP nomination. And no matter how much of a slam dunk most of the charges against citizen Donald appear to be, I think it's hard for any of us to imagine him actually doing time in prison or at a minimum being disqualified. And even if Trump is somehow prevented from actually running, Biden is polling statistically even with Nikki Haley, so there's no clear path to victory on that front either. And when it comes to the anger among liberal Democrats towards progressives like me, who are critical of Biden, you have to understand where we're coming from. The things that made the Biden platform palatable, if not popular, were progressive in nature and contributed toward the turnout that made a difference in 2020. See, three years ago, Progressives, we did our job. We watched as the DNC circled the proverbial wagons around a man that previously sought and lost the nomination once in 1988 and once in 2008 because the establishment was threatened by the surge in support for Bernie Sanders. One by one, the other avatars of the establishment fell in line to prevent Bernie from running the table in the primary because first he took Iowa, right? He trounced Biden, but the other delegates were later reapportioned. Then he took New Hampshire, and then Nevada, and a chill went down the spine of the DNC, which is metaphor since the DNC is spineless, and so Yang, Bennett, Patrick, and Steyer jumped ship to support Biden. And when Bernie still put up admirable numbers in South Carolina, even after Clyburn threw his formidable base behind Biden, Klobuchar and Buttigieg fell in line before Super Tuesday, with the latter leveling an all-out rhetorical assault on Bernie, the man he credited as his inspiration for getting into politics. Bloomberg and Warren followed shortly thereafter, with Warren petulantly holding back her endorsement until the death of Bernie's campaign was a certainty. And so we fell in line. We lost. And then we backed Joe Biden in his third bid to secure the nomination, and pulled the lever for him to prevent a second Trump term. And in return, we made a few demands that he promised to address. The Green New Deal, expanded health coverage, $15 minimum wage, student debt erasure, end foreign wars, continue the direct child tax credit payments, extended parental leave, and greater protection for workers. In other words, the really popular shit that got him elected in the first fucking place. Now, we understood that most, but not all of these things, were obtainable, 
with the Democratic majority, but he'd have to act quickly and decisively. I mean, like, we knew Medicare for all was off the table, right? But everything else was pretty attainable. And here's where the lines of communication begin to break down. Most people assume that all politicians lie to get elected. So when Biden made strides in certain areas, some progressives were stunned and happily surprised. But let's be honest. When he and Bernie had their fucking kumbaya moment, our demands were pretty clear. You don't get the support of our guy unless you fight for these things. And now that we're three years into it, we have receipts. And while Trump poses a grave threat to our democracy, marginalized people in the planet, and we'll get to that, Joe Biden is still the fucking president. And frankly, we'd like a word. The Green New Deal didn't happen. We got a ton of investments into clean energy initiatives that will take time to implement, and it's a great start. But we've still done nothing to slow emissions in the meantime. And in fact, we've doubled down on fossil fuel production and opened up new areas for fossil fuel exploration. That wasn't the deal. There were 29 million uninsured people in the United States in 2019. In 2022, that figure fell to 25.6 million. Let me ask you, is that enough for you? Are we supposed to settle for this? I mean, sure, he extended provisions to cover prescription drugs for seniors, but millions of people were dropped from Medicaid in 2023, so now it's likely that these gains were reversed, despite the fact that unemployment remains incredibly low. So what happens when there's a spike in unemployment? That wasn't the deal. Biden issued an order to increase minimum wage just for federal workers to $15 in 2021. In 2022, it was blocked by a federal court and the federal minimum wage for all remains at $7.25. That wasn't the deal. Several organizations and policy groups have demonstrated how the Biden administration can eliminate all student debt lawfully without going through Congress. And instead, Biden chose to leverage pandemic relief rules to eliminate up to 10,000 of all debt and up to 20,000 in some cases, and it got shot down. Since then, the administration has done a workaround to eliminate several billion dollars, but most student debt holders don't qualify. That was not the deal. We asked Biden to end all foreign wars. He pulled us out of Afghanistan, and he should be commended for that, unless you live in Afghanistan under Taliban rule, and then you might want to have a word with him for the manner in which we abandoned the ship. But since then, we've armed Ukraine and Israel for their war efforts, sold arms to nearly every country in the world, and strategically bombed a handful of nations when we needed to remind everyone of what we're capable of. Oh, and we're on the brink of an all-out war in the Middle East and Northern Africa. So essentially, he's just outsourced war. That wasn't the deal. We asked him to continue the direct child tax credit payments. Instead, he ended them. That was not the deal. We asked for extended parental leave. Didn't happen, not even close. That wasn't the deal. We asked for greater protection for workers, and Biden did make it easier to unionize. So that's great. Oh, that was part of the deal. But also, union membership declined in 2023 anyway. So when you ask progressives to choose the lesser of two evils, this is the mental tally that we do. And when you're surprised by our tepid response to the election and call our criticisms of Biden irresponsible, maybe now you understand. Or maybe you don't. But at least you know. Now, here's why you should be both vocal in your criticism of Biden and... 
go right ahead and vote for him in November. Because we already lost the election. And we lost it a long time ago. We lost the election when none of our demands from prior years even made it onto the ballot. I mean, I love Cornell West, and he still has my vote because I live in Blue York. But his candidacy is a true protest, and his campaign is muddled and directionless. And if RFK's vaccine stance doesn't bother you as a liberal, then his full-throated promotion of free market libertarian ideals really should. Or his rabid defense of Israel, despite social media nods to known white supremacist code language. Or how he claimed he never said COVID-19 was genetically engineered to spare Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese people, even after a recording of him saying exactly that was released. I mean, seriously, fuck this guy. Pardon my French, but you're an asshole. And Jill Stein? I mean, stop. The election is a single day. But our activism has to be 24-7-365. Pulling the lever for Biden is just an acknowledgement that we failed to make our demands heard or make demonstrable change in a system designed by and in favor of corporate oligarchs. Progressives are back to the drawing board. It is what it is. And voting for Biden is the lesser of two evils vote, by the way. There's no reason to call it anything else. Now, in show notes and on a couple of episodes, I've referenced the debate between Crystal Ball and Kyle Kalinske and Brianna Joy Gray, so hopefully you've had a chance to check it out, if this is a debate that you care about or if you're tortured over having to make this decision come November. I've said many times that I thought Crystal and Kyle were very well-reasoned and rational in their defense of Biden over Trump, but that it's almost like they couldn't see past their privilege to understand what Brianna was actually saying. It's a privilege that I personally enjoy, by the way, and that is as a white American in a safely blue state. So without rehashing the whole thing again, the upshot of Brianna's argument was that Biden may have prevented the utter collapse of democratic norms, but he broke almost all of the promises that were made to black and brown communities and the working poor in this country. That there was no material difference between the Trump years and the Biden years to most people on the ground every day. If we continue to fall for the lesser of two evils gag, then eventually everything will just be evil. And at what point do we draw the line? So now her stance is a mild form of accelerationist theory, but it's a sentiment that we have to listen to closely. Because what you're hearing is an absence of hope. And hope is what brings people out and gets them to vote. People have to see themselves on the ballot. So what's the point of shouting at the rain, right? Well, Nathan Robinson made an excellent point in conversation with Ben Burgess recently. The idea among liberals and the Democratic establishment is that criticizing Biden serves to bolster Trump. Bullshit. If anything, we need to get louder at this moment. These are warning shots and wake-up calls. If riots are the language of the unheard, then let our protests and criticism serve as policy beacons. Expressing our displeasure at the administration by threatening to pull our support or to simply sit out the election is exactly the way to accomplish change. Remember, voting is just a moment. It's a moment in time on one day of the year. And if you want our support on that day, Joe, well then no problem. We'll make it super easy. Don't just put your name on the ballot. Put us on the ballot. Don't tell us that you've done so much already. If we tell you, we can't feel it. 
Tell us the 10 things you're going to do to improve the lives of the working class, the marginalized, poverty-stricken, homeless, downtrodden, and the middle class. The student, the veteran, the healthcare worker, the gig worker with three jobs taking care of her parents and trying to buy a home. I mean, don't just scare us by saying that you've laid the foundation, now don't let the other guy tear it back down. Because whether it's a dirt lot or a lot with a concrete foundation, doesn't make a difference to us. Because you can't live there either way. It's up to you to help us see the vision. Show us the plans to the house, Joe. You have the power to get rid of punitive PMI insurance on mortgages, to do more on student debt, and to refinance the rest of it. Stop blocking UN votes and demand a ceasefire in Gaza, for Christ's sake. How about this? Put the public option back on the table, right? Introduce it back into the fucking conversation. Put minimum wage back on the table. Threaten to stack the court like FDR did, or show us some legislative path forward to secure reproductive rights and bodily autonomy. Go on the offensive and browbeat the Federal Reserve like the other guy did. Try and reduce rates and simultaneously produce a plan to go after monopolies and price gouging if you really want to see inflation go down. By the way, all these ideas poll really fucking well with the public. Now where they perform less well is with groups like APAC and others, which begs the question, whose side are you on? In the Burgess-Robinson discussion, Ben Burgess plays a clip of Crystal Ball being asked by a viewer whether or not she still supports Biden and stands by her position from the debate with Brianna. And here's what she had to say. Um, listen, I mean, all the arguments still stand. Like if you're looking at the domestic record, if you you know care about unions and the antitrust movement, like it's very clear Biden is better on those issues. But I certainly cannot in good faith look at any person in this country and tell them you should vote for a man who is um, supporting a genocide, shipping the bombs, unconditional support, like, it's just too far. Heed what Crystal's saying here, okay? This isn't on us. We're telling you what we want. We're telling you that we'll show up again, even after the things we asked for never materialized. But you gotta show us something, Joe. Okay, I hear where you're coming from, but let's go back. Let's say he does nothing to change course. Why is it still better to vote for Biden in November, all things being equal? All right, I'm going to give you two reasons to close this out. Two reasons outside of yourself, outside of the broken promises and the daily economic stress that overwhelms so many of us. Ketanji Brown-Jackson and the trans community. Even if Alito and Thomas live, what if Sotomayor doesn't? Look, people die. Stranger things have happened. A 7-2 conservative majority in the Supreme Court will take decades to unravel. And KBJ, for the record, might be Biden's crowning achievement. The single most qualified and most progressive justice on the bench. Hard stop. And if you have a trans person in your life, at work, among your friends, or in your family then you're likely aware of the growing rates of violence against this community and the unprecedented amount of state and federal anti-trans legislation pending at the moment. A Trump administration would be catastrophic for this community. So call it holding your nose, the lesser of two evils, call it what you like. Most of what we want isn't on the menu. That's just preordained. And the selections won't make a material difference to most of our lives 
because we've already handed the keys to our collective fate over to corporations who win either way in the grand scheme of things. But it will matter to someone that you care about. So in that private moment, when you pull the lever or mail in the ballot, you can do so with a clear conscience and a loving heart. Here endeth the meditation. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Hey, Manny again. All right, before he rambles some more, a special shout out to all of our over-caffeinated members. Alfie and Flash. Asshole. Brie X. Cindy S. David MJ. Eric Wagner 101. Goat. Glenn, G. Wookie of Ohio, Jason, Cringy, Leanne R., Marco F., Maria from Puerto Rico, Matthew, Michelle H., Nathan E., Nathan Surst, Nettie Hugger 1, PDX Squatch, Pete M., Rob Nasby, Rodrigo G., Sherman Dreadnought, Sloppy Joe, Snail Powered, Sultan, Jerry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sultan, Terry C, the younger PDX Squatch, Todd J, Video Eng Alex, W Jeremy D, and the memory of Nettie McGee. All right, there's your break. You're welcome. Now more blathering from Max. I hope you understand why I felt I needed to do this before we continue with all of the other episodes that we have planned because it's almost like why do why even bother doing the other episodes if we can't all sort of align around certain concepts and feelings and sentiments and have this out. I mean, I've heard you guys loud and clear. Now, a lot of people are, you know, supportive and they get it. Some people have said, fuck it, I'm sitting out. Others have emailed me. Uh, I forget who said it, but uh, somebody said, as a really good friend of the show, shit. Anyway, they said, I've taken to hate listening <laughs> to the podcast. I think I lost a member recently too, just said, fuck it, I'm done. And I just want to say again, I totally get it. I totally get all of it. I really do. And this is going to be a very trying year. But we've got a lot of work to do. We really do. So in that spirit, unfuckers, that's why we've put so much emphasis in building out resources on the website and in partnering with Newsbeat as an example to bring more social justice issues to the table. We're looking at expanding our list of phone of friends and resources that we pull into both the YouTube channel and on the pod and, and, and again, also resources on the website to try and create some momentum and some sticky things that we can all do to feel good about, you know, so we can feel like we accomplished something. I mean, the forces of evil are aligning in this election and it's gonna be fucking ugly. And who knows, who knows what changes over the next few months? I mean, as they say in politics, I mean, th this is a political lifetime away. But, you know, this idea of not seeing ourselves on the ballot, this is real. This is palpable. I don't think there's anybody in America who's like, you know, fuck yeah. That's the person that really represents all of my beliefs. And frankly, that's that's rarely the case. I mean, Bernie was such, Bernie was such an anomaly. And I'm so chagrined by the fact that there. There really was no bench. 
There was no groundswell to, to kind of follow up in that. And that's something that we need to meditate on as, as a community. And I'm hearing a lot of calls right now for back to basics coalition building. And I think that's right headed. I really think that that's a, that's a very good idea. And this is sort of an olive branch in that direction. It's to say like, listen, I'm allowed to criticize all these things because that's the party in power and that's our job and we're the voters and we have the power. We are the people. And at the same time, just know that, yeah, I'm going to go in there and hold my nose, right? I mean, I'm not because I get to vote for Cornell West. But we really want as many people as possible to go in there and prevent Trump from coming back to office because I do think... It would be a complete and utter disaster. I mean, yeah, wow, shocking take, right, Max? But seriously, when we start to think about the things that can be unraveled, we we, we barely touch the surface of them. Like all the things that happen from an executive order standpoint and with cabinet appointments and, you know, manipulating certain votes, we have a lot of judges left to approve. The cabinet positions make a very big difference. Think about net neutrality being back on the table. I mean, we covered that late last year, right? I mean, that was just a very quiet order and a shift in policy done by the Biden administration. Very little fanfare, but really fucking important, right? So I acknowledge that there have been a lot of quiet gains made in the administrative state, so to speak. And those things can be unwound in an instant. Also, I think it's important to say I'm very clear-headed about the obstacles that are in the way of the Biden administration. And I would settle for a couple of things. I would have settled over the last couple of years for a couple of things that would, I think, make me more vocal in supporting him. The hard work, the big stuff got done in year one. And that seems to be kind of how shit goes these days, right? I mean, take the pandemic out of it and all of the Herculean efforts that were pretty much done under the Trump administration for the most part, and then and then went into the beginning of the Biden administration when we were just ready to you know write checks for anything and everything. A lot of that stuff really made a difference in people's lives. And um, as much as we fucked up the pandemic response, the economic salvation that came through for small businesses and a lot of people with the expansion of Medicaid and, and affordable care, prescription drugs, covering the vaccine costs, all this stuff was really super important. You got to, you know, you got to give credit where credit is due. So, you know, at the tail end of the Trump administration, because I think he was so panicked and freaked out, things started to, from a policy perspective, go the right way because it looked very progressive, what was happening, very Keynesian. And then Joe Biden continued on that path while he had the support. And I know we had Manchin and Cinema just you know, fucking things up every step of the way. I get it. But that's where leadership matters. Can you imagine a Bernie Sanders presidency just dialing back the pressure on his colleagues in the Senate and in the House? I mean, he would be relentless right now. And I think that's what we needed to see. I'm not sure Biden's capable of delivering it. And again, don't want to be an ageist and I don't want to be accused of you know, going after him because of whatever, you know, the degradation of his mental faculties or, you know, this, this stutter that he's struggled to overcome his entire life. But the fact of the matter is, guy's a shit communicator. Can't communicate with the American public for shit sure. And you got to imagine behind closed doors, uh, you know, 
his old school, you know, 1970s uh, collegial Senate type of approach. That's not today, man. I mean, this is this is fucking blood sport and you got to get out in the, and you got to have these battles out in public. That's something that Bernie would have been willing to do. And he would have been he would have been sounding the alarm and beating the fucking drum every step of the way. And that's just not what we've got in Biden. And for sure, the team around him isn't hardwired that way. And in fact, it seems to me that the one thing that he does really, really well is he keeps a tight wrap on the White House. He keeps a tight wrap on stuff that comes out of the executive branch. Like you don't see a lot of bullshit leaking out of the White House. And that tells me that there's some micromanagement going on. Maybe there's also fear of people going out a little too far and, you know, getting getting over their skis to promote things that, you know, might be beneficial for everybody or even take a stance that's against the administration. We've had a couple of low-profile resignations over his uh, over his Israel-Gaza stance. But other than that, I mean, everybody's pretty much in lockstep and pretty much aligned with what is turning out to be a pretty conservative and uh, a, a pretty terrifying agenda if you look at foreign policy, first and foremost. If you look at the border and the crisis that, that continues there, and the fact that we've really turned our back on the poor, the marginalized, the homeless, and the poorest among us. The homeless, I mean, my God. So, yeah, maybe if he had been more effective as a communicator, if he'd been more of a fighter in public that we assume he is in private, if he wasn't afraid to browbeat and embarrass his colleagues that were stymieing his agenda, Instead of saying, we'll work it out, we'll work it out, we'll work it out. Well, guess what? It didn't fucking work out in a lot of cases, right? So our grievances are real. I mean, real. But when you go into the poll, when you go into the booth, rather, or when you're filling out the ballot, do think about the couple of areas that Donald Trump can have a significant immediate and then a significant lasting further impact on the country because it wasn't enough that he just blew up norms and he's thumbed his nose at authority and, you know, tried to ride roughshod over Congress and state legislatures and, you know, fucked up our image on the world stage. And, you know, I mean, pulled us out of certain treaties and protocols and upended the, the international order. Forget all those things and the mismanagement and the, and the criminality and the, Oh man, the head fakes and the culture wars and the, the 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 just the narcissistic tendencies of the entire presidency. Forget all of that. The guy locked down the fucking Supreme Court. Oh God, he locked it down. And there's a chance he could lock it down further. It's a big risk, man. And I can tell you for sure, for sure, that he will continue on the offensive when it comes to the culture wars and just even rhetorically even rhetorically although there are agenda items that he can push and funding maneuvers that he can that he can make happen that will severely impact marginalized communities but just even the rhetorical assault on the trans community will increase the level of scrutiny and violence and the light that is on this community right now. And it, it will it will be devastating. I mean, that's a guarantee. So if nothing else, if you're one of those people that thinks like all things being equal, 
Shit didn't materially change for me. Shit's not going to materially change for me. And this one guy is a proponent of genocide. And this other guy might start a nuclear war. Like, this is just dystopian all around. There are material differences to people that you love. So go ahead. Vote for Biden. No shame. Truly. I'm going to do me. I'm going to keep criticizing because that's how we move policy. That's how we get them to wake the fuck up and look at the polling data, match that against the shit we want, and start to align the two. Because we're going to have to have a very different term two than we did term one if we even get there. Anyway, go to unftr.com. A couple of things that I need you to do just in terms of housekeeping. I need you to go to Manny Faces YouTube and like and subscribe to it. YouTube.com slash at Manny Faces Official. Thanks. I need you to go to the UNFTR YouTube, like and subscribe to it. YouTube.com slash at UNFTR. Download the Newsbeat podcast on your app because there are partners now. Is uh, another Manny Faces production. Go to their Substack and subscribe for free over there to get their essays as well. But start going to unftr.com with greater frequency. We've had a stunning number of signups for the newsletter. The newsletter is becoming a, like a core product for us. So if you're not subscribed to the newsletter, the Friday newsletter is free. Now, we do have a new premium newsletter that launched every Tuesday. We sent one out to everybody in the first go around, but now it's a premium newsletter for different membership tiers. But go take a look at those membership tiers. If you like what you see on Friday, you're going to like what you see in the premium newsletter on Tuesday. Coming this month, we've got the first unlocked benefit tier of a monthly hang with Max plus a special guest. I'm excited for that. So we'll have news on that pretty soon. And anything you could do to support us, to help us grow this year, and to help fund the work and the journalism that we that we have planned and the episodes we have planned for the year, please do consider taking out a membership because it's the only way to keep this thing rolling and funded. That's it for now on Fuckers. We'll catch you on the flip side. Have a great week.